everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Hello, this is Let's Talk About Myths, baby, and I am your host, Liv, back from two months away in Greece. Not that you guys would know it because I've been releasing episodes this entire time, but finally, I'm recording things like closer to the when they're being aired, you know, so I don't have to account for all of the horror that'll happen in the world in the interim. Which I'm not going to get into now because uh, I traveled for 27 hours just the other day and I'm not ready for that. And, well, I'm here in this moment because I had a different episode that was scheduled to air, a conversation, um, but I can no longer air that conversation for reasons I will not get into. But what it means is I came back from my two-month trip and 10 hours time difference to have one single day to fix this uh, issue in time for an episode to air. And instead of trying to race and put out something that wasn't quite as perfect as I want it to be, I've chosen to air an absolute fan favorite episode. The time last year that I spoke with Kyle Lewis Jordan about Hephaestus, but about Hephaestus as a disabled god. 
one of the most fascinating and important episodes that I have done on this show. It is part one of two. So in this episode's description, you will find a link to part two, as well as a link to the episodes I did on Hephaestus as a god and his mythology to accompany these, because this spawned a real resurgence in my appreciation of Hephaestus. And I'm just excited to share this with you all again. So please sit back and enjoy this episode from last year with Kyle Lewis Jordan. And next week, next week, I will be back with something new. conversations. Who really is Hephaestus? Disability in Greek myth with Kyle Lewis Jordan. Thank you so much for being here. So why don't you start by telling us kind of what you study and, and you know, what your interests are in this realm? I am a postgraduate student at University College London's Institute of Archaeology, currently uh, researching um, the archaeology and heritage of Egypt and the Middle East. I um, am a disabled uh, person. I've, I have cerebral palsy. And I, that obviously informs my work. I broadly focus on the realms of religion, magic, and identity in the Egyptian world, but with a specific focus on the representation and approaches to disability. Uh, and I'm currently, my, my thesis topic is actually uh, looking at the role and significance of disability and bodily difference in pharaonic court society. So I do a lot basically around the body and representations of disability, hence why, despite not being trained as a, as a classicist, mm. I take a lot of interest in Hephaestus. And I did, I, for my undergrad, I did do my, um, my um, uh, dissertation was on a comparative analysis of approaches between Egypt and Greece. So Hephaestus was one of the key focuses of that. And my interest in him kind of from the sidelines has only grown. Yeah. So, I mean, well, then we'll just jump right in. So, I mean, I'm happy to talk about, I mean, whatever and all of, you know, what what you mm. study when it comes to this, because I think it all sounds fascinating and, you know, something that doesn't mm -hmm. probably get talked a lot in terms of outside of academic circles specific to that topic. So I mm -hmm. think that's really important. Um, but specifically Hephaestus, I, I mean, that's why why you're here, I think. Hephaestus is so interesting. And, you know, as a, a person who, you know, is not disabled, I've never focused much on of his, on his um on his disability besides, you know, pointing mm -hmm. out how problematic the early the translations have been. You know, he, mm -hmm. he just go right out and say it. Like he's always described as like the lame god, which is the lame so god. dark, it, it, you know, in so many ways. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I've gone with that, but my focus is always on him as just such a shitty guy when it comes to like Aphrodite yeah. and Aries. Yeah, this is, 
<laughs> this is um this is definitely one of the complicated things and one that you know I recently have got into a few conversations of and t- to be absolutely clear you're not wrong to see him as a shitty <laughs> yeah. guy like I've none of none of what I kind of try and get people to think about is try to absolve him quote unquote or to make you feel sympathetic I don't think he's a he's an Olympian he doesn't need your sympathy <laughs> yeah. so like you know like he is he is like still capable of being just a shitty person as the rest of them uh, or shitty yeah. being I should say but um, yeah. <laughs> effectively um, what I do try and get across more so and this kind of comes in with the translation and mm-hmm. all about reception so that ties in nicely with the, the most recent episode with Dr. Austin mm-hmm. is is the idea of like how that is perceived both by the Greeks themselves and by us today and and in the and in the many intervening years since yeah. I mean even by the even by the Romans like kind of time when they came to prominence and were starting to mess around with 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 the Greek myths, they they had some very interesting kind of takes on on um, Vulcan as they mm. call them. I mean, namely by erasing the disability entirely, almost. Interesting. Uh, like they, they 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 never really acknowledge it. Obviously, you still get the stories of of for them, obviously Venus and Mars and the and the cuckolding as it gets referred to by some scholars. But, <laughs> yeah. But, you know, it's it is um, yeah, his clubbed foot as it's often kind of agreed amongst scholars. That's okay. like if you were to decide the embodiment of his impairment that is how it would often be referred to as a clubbed foot Mm. Uh, sometimes in translation it gets referred to as a crooked foot or a lame foot but again that's very dated um, Mm -hmm. and just very as you said not not great I mean this is the actually this would might might be a good place to start and that is that Mm -hmm. in a lot of reception of Hephaestus especially more modern and when I say modern I don't just mean today I mean like say in the last few centuries or so Mm -hmm. you know because if we think on the time span of ancient to today that's quite a lot of time so modern (laughs) is quite relative but like the the presentation of Hephaestus is often like he gets what I like to be referred to as quasimodoed like he gets mm. made to be a lot more uh, effectively, for lack of a better word, monstrous than mm-hmm. than he really was, even to the Greeks. I mean, like in Hesiod's Theogony, like literally the description that we're given of him, I mean, it isn't even a physical description. It literally says that Hera kind of gave birth to him out of fury and frustration with Zeus for birthing uh, Athena. And that will be something that will come up much later, I imagine, if we do talk about Hephaestus and Athena, because there's a lot there as well. Oh, yes. <laughs> but yeah, it literally just says, gave birth to the renowned Hephaestus, who is endowed with skills beyond all the celestials. So all it says is that he is a very well-endowed uh, god, and that he obviously has this great skill. It doesn't say anything about being gross or deformed and in fact in his physical descriptions from various other sources the general gist that you get is that while he does have this clubbed foot and he has some weakness in his legs generally otherwise he's described as having a rather large torso a rather thick neck and some and a hairy chest that's it he doesn't in in the rest of his description he is pretty much what you would imagine an olympian to be Mm -hmm. in every possible way except for the one way that his mother rejected him for, which was the his his crooked foot, and mm-hmm. and that I, I I find just really interesting to think of how from then to now how he has been shaped and changed into this far more sort of grotesque sort of individual, and what that says really about what we perceive when we think of it, and this is where. I also, this is why I was so interested in Hephaestus, because when I would notice him and the first time I started getting into kind of the ancient world and I saw him, like I, I remember going to the British Museum for the first time and you see the Parthenon 
uh, frieze in in the gallery, and you see him represented on the frieze, and he has the walking stick. Mm-hmm. And you think to yourself, uh, uh, the 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 kind of crutch, rather, sorry, to be more mm-hmm. specific. And and you think, oh, that's interesting, because when you think of Olympians, you obviously think of the very perfect, the very kind of just peak power sort of beings, and and then you see. Uh, Hephaestus and then you would ask I would ask my uh, professors when I was doing ancient history and Egyptology for my undergrad so it was between it was a dual honors between history and archaeology and in archaeology is where I did all the Egyptology and basically in the history is where I le- I learned about the history of the Near East and of Greece and Rome mm. and whenever I talked to my Greek professors and asked them about what they thought about Hephaestus the, the response I would generally get was um they would ask, uh, or no, they would say that, oh, you know, that's just to reflect the nature of being a smith in the ancient world because it could be quite crippling work. And that is true. Mm. That is not untrue by any means. And I don't, I don't want to say that that isn't part of it, but I somehow struggle to believe that a, the, 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 a choice to represent an Olympian with, with, that, with that kind of embodiment didn't have something more to say. And so when I think about it and when we think kind of going back to what I was saying about his conception, so as I said, like he is conceived by Hera after witnessing Zeus conceive Athena. And, and in Hera's way of how sick of her husband's <laughs> shit she is, uh, is like, okay, fine, uh, I could do this and I'm going to make him even better. I'm going to make a great and powerful god of my own. And she does, by all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. She makes, uh, I would argue, for my money, one of the most powerful gods on Olympus, as we can also get into. But like, I I think, yeah, it's just, he is perfect in all the ways that he was meant to be, except for the way that Hera wants him to be. Mm -hmm. And that's why she throws him off (laughs) off Olympus Mm -hmm. and it goes from there. So yeah. Well, and what's interesting too about him and that whole birth story, because, you know, I always have to come back to this idea that Zeus conceived Athena, which is actually Mm. bullshit, right? Like, Mm -hmm. You know, somebody like, you know, I don't I don't know who it appears. It must be like the Homeric hymn or something, because like you say, I mean, you know, it's a little bit less in, in Hesiod, though I suppose it was more about that and less about his disability in Hesiod. But yeah, regardless, yeah, like, you know, Zeus does not conceive Athena. Zeus eats her mother yes, and yeah, thus yeah. gives birth to her, which is so similar to, you know, Dionysus is sometimes used as an example of that as mm-hmm. well, but he also killed her mother and then sewed him up in her in his thigh, you know, like mm-hmm. Zeus did not create anyone on his own, whereas mm. Hera actually did, mm. you know, and, and and not only that, but like you're saying, like one of the most important gods from a practical standpoint, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, he was important all around, but the practicality of, of Hephaestus's importance is huge, mm. right? Like everything about what he did, was huge, was so important to the daily world of the ancient Greeks. And so, you know, he was so important. He was so perfect. And, and Hera created him all on her own. So I also, I like to, you know, go back to that because I think it's, I mean, she handles it poorly. Though I think there are some sources that suggest that Zeus threw him off. There is of that. Anger. There is, there, mm-hmm. there are, there are um, variations of that. As is typical in myth, you will find variations. There is also a variation to the uh, the creation of, of Athena that mm-hmm. it features Hephaestus. Um, I just, mm-hmm, uh, true. in my reading, yeah. there, is a, there is a great one where basically, because as you said, he, uh, Zeus eats Athena's uh, mother. And so then Athena being born, um kind of decides well i'm gonna go sit in the place of reason which is the head and then she gives him a massive headache now what i like to imagine is basically Athena um is like oh my god what is in here and so basically <laughs> just starts lambasting him from inside so he's got a splitting <laughs> headache and in yeah. this version of the story hephaestus is basically tasked with like 
fixing it. So he just gets a massive great axe and just whacks him on the head. And what I like to imagine is he's standing there behind the throne of Zeus, about to give him a massive whack. And the one time Hera's proud of him for taking a whack at Zeus, she's just like, yeah, you go. <laughs> Hit him so hard that the, that the Titans and Tartarus can hear it. Um, <laughs> yeah, so yeah. like, yeah, but there, there you go. He hits his head and, and so comes forth Athena. And I think obviously from that moment in that variation of the myth, that's where their partnership kind of begins because it's from that moment that you know he just kind of has that affinity for her and yeah but that that is true there 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 are many variations but i think the general consensus is that he obviously he gets thrown from olympus in some variations he'll fall straight into the ocean and that is where he is rescued by fetus and the other Mm -hmm. oceanids and they take care of him and teach him the ways of his craft in other slight variations he falls on the island of lemnos and Mm -hmm. it is there that he is uh taken care of and protected by the kabiri i think is the is the is the the local people they are a kind of a mythic people who are basically uh renowned for their metal work so Mm -hmm. there there comes in the connection with his his ability to shape metal which is actually obviously a very significant skill and it's not just the fact that he can shape it but as we'll probably go on to explore, it's the fact that he can give it life as well. He can give it mm-hmm. motion. Um, but yeah, it's there that he falls to Lemnos or into the ocean. Either way, he is very close to volcanoes. And that mm-hmm. obviously ties in with his nature. He is he is very closely um, associated with volcanoes. And if you think of their very uh, violent nature, if, if, if the way we imagine volcanoes, obviously their eruptions and things like that, that almost in a way, along with Hera's own anger at the moment that she was conceiving him, because again... Her frustration with Zeus ties in very much with his nature as well. He's a very, in most in most cases, he's he's he is described as a very kind of fierce sort of very 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 ill-tempered god, and that obviously ties <laughs> yeah. in with what we were saying earlier that he he is not a very very good at handling uh, <laughs> um, certain 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 scenarios, as 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 we'll go on to mention, I'm sure, but. But um, that is a very interesting thing that I think is is worth exploring as well, his relationship with anger. And I think, I mean, this comes from a much later source, but in the second century AD, um, Greek diviners uh, used to say that women who were angry at birth or at the point of conception, either way around, uh, could give birth to to disabled children. That was oh. essentially one one thing that was kind of said to happen. So whichever came first and fought, because again, this is second century AD, so whether mm-hmm. they got this idea later on or whether this was an idea that had lasted a long time, either way, it's interesting, I think, to see the connection between the two, perhaps, that this idea is that he, he, he was born with this clubbed foot, uh, which is uncharacteristic of other Olympians because of his mother's anger. And so that oft- often, of course, defines their relationship and the kind of on and off relationship that they have, mostly on Hephaestus's <laughs> side, where he really wants the affection of his mother. But there are some times where he just can't stand her. And, you know, he refers to her in the Iliad, I think, as his dog faced mother, which is like <laughs> a very strong, very strong um, turn of phrase and there's also a, a great story whereby because obviously there's the story of the golden throne uh, which yeah. he makes for her that binds her and that's how he kind of bargains his way back into olympus but there's also he he makes her a pair of adamantine sandals mm. um and she she puts them on and she immediately falls flat on her face and i'm just like <laughs> part of me just can't help but imagine her first just being very petty and just be like yes <laughs> I mean, so, he was a petty man. If he's anything, like all of the stories, <laughs> he he does he does come across as incredibly petty. That is very true. Um, yeah, but yeah, no. So there we go. We have these kind of his obviously embodiment of his of his of his club foot. 
Mm-hmm. But then the relationship that that has with his anger as well, and what that means, and it it kind of comes across in modern reception too. I mean, um, I don't know how much you've played video games, but um, uh, like you know, you have games series like God of War, where in God of War three, Hephaestus plays quite a prominent role because mm. he is the agonized, tortured kind of god who's sitting in his forge, um, and um, he kind of helps Kratos, the the main the player character through his task of defeating the other Olympians and eventually turns on him, but that's just God of War for you. And then, but there's also the more recent one, which I haven't played, but Dr. Kira Jones has told me about this in, uh, in uh, Immortals Phoenix Rising. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically, you're, you're helping each of the gods regain their powers. And for Hephaestus, his power is tied to his anger. Like he is basically in the game, he has lost his anger. He is now a contented... Mm a contented person but that contentment means he's no able no longer really able to do the things that that he's supposed to do like so that's a very interesting thing in terms of modern reception how intimately he's kind of conceived with his anger and that without it he is apparently not really the god he's supposed to be which i think is very interesting but uh-huh. bear in mind obviously i'm reading this as a as a disabled person and for disabled people relationship with anger is a very very intimate thing as well you know the characterization Mm -hmm. of of disabled people as always angry or always bitter is very very hard thing to navigate um because if you do show any anger people will just automatically kind of just assume oh you know they're just another bitter bitter disabled person so it's it's very therefore therefore when i read hephaestus i always do kind of have that lens in mind and so i'm always like "Mm," you know um but it, it, it is it is interesting Mm-hmm. Well, that's, that is fascinating. The, the idea of the, you know, b- belief, gosh, some of the things that they believed back then, um, but mm. the belief that, yeah, an, an angry woman uh, could give birth to a disabled child. I mean, of course, you know, it's always, always the fault of the woman too, which yes. is something that obviously is my, the, the thing I get most connected to. Um, but yeah, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I think Hephaestus is so interesting because I do think that like, you know, again, as somebody coming at it from, from, you know, the, an, side of non-disability mm. like he to me it, they don't make obvious connections to his disability when mm. it comes to his shitty character which is mm. i would see a, as a you know a good thing yeah. like it's he his his shittiness seems to be totally separate mm. <laughs> like he's just he's just a guy who you know and i think you know that he took some hard times in his life regardless like and you know maybe that just shaped certain things but i do I find his his character just to be entertaining in in the way that mm. he you know chooses to express his anger and his frustrations, and it creative in a way mm. that is just like you know fun to to <laughs> read about between yes. the the golden throne the sandals you know the way that the the golden throne then gets him married to Aphrodite mm-hmm. and like you know it's yeah it's it's a fascinating thing but then when you have this connection to the the disability of it and then you know add to it yes yeah, like the modern reception you were talking about of quasimodoing him which is a, a you know a, i think a powerful mm. word mm. to use to describe it when yeah he really isn't described as as anything of that mm. sort he's just you know i think to me he comes off a little bit more as i think the 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 development of the gods the mythology the olympians specifically are such good representations of the way that the greeks saw them as human as you know embodying all these very human characteristics Mm -hmm. you know to the point where you know they would have seen disabled people amongst their community and then you know they're they have a disabled god in a way that he is not um 
unable to do anything. Mm-hmm. He just, you know, has this disability and, you know, but ultimately is like this wildly powerful and important God. And I find that incredibly fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then just the way though, that I think like, yeah, certainly modern reception has made it incredibly, incredibly like way, you know, more problematic than, than it was back then. <laughs> mm. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think obviously part of it comes in with obviously just how the changing attitudes towards the embodiment of disability. So impairments, mm. physical difference has obviously changed over the years. And I, and I mean that, that, that also obviously complicates our reading of, these these tales of Festus and things because it's actually Im- interesting that you bring up uh, humor and mm. uh, obviously entertaining in some of his days. He is a cunning god. He is mm-hmm. he is very crafty and very um he he does like to scheme um especially <laughs> yeah. when he's trying to get revenge on people and there is meant to be a degree of humor in that and I mean mm-hmm. disability in terms of its embodiments and its impairments uh, does feature in Greek uh, humor quite a bit I mean mm. um in terms mm. of Hephaestus what I think the way I read it as a as a disabled mm-hmm. uh, man and as a disabled academic who studies the um kind of interpretations and reflections upon disability in, mm. in in an ancient world context so attitudes essentially towards and what that says about that society's own kind of feelings about their own body because obviously it, it and mind in a way you can you, you can expand it further but the mind is obviously even harder to get into the body itself is already kind of the ancient body is already kind of disseminated across time like obviously we when we think of the classical world today we're thinking of more so the renaissance sculptures than the actual sculptures themselves Mm -hmm. or they're they're thinking of the body in the same way that obviously the mind is even farther disseminated like uh, i mean nowadays you do get these great studies of the histories of emotion in 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 the ancient world obviously greek emotion is a great subject like i mean the iliad just as one example is just a story Mm -hmm. that is all about emotion from beginning to end from various different vantage points which Mm -hmm. has been taken advantage of for great retellings in a modern context but also i think often we we forget how central the body was how central the body was and still is to our own kind of embodiment within the world how we think of the world and ourselves because of it and so I do think well I guess uh, another way to kind of extrapolate on this idea is to actually kind of get to the nuts and bolts of why I think you can call Hephaestus a disabled god because Mm. to most modern kind of reception of disability in in both the terms of how it's studied in antiquity most scholars think of disability as by the social model of disability which just to briefly explain is basically a model which counter to what's called the medical model the idea being that you, that the person who has the disability is the sole kind of almost problem of the of the thing it's all within your own body and therefore has to be medically treated fixed in order fixed quote unquote in order mm. to kind of be part of society the social model in as simple as, uh, as an explanation as i can give basically looks at society as the ones who create the barriers that force disabled people with their impairments so there is a separation between the impairment and the disability uh, to have to struggle essentially and so mm. you know it's the breaking down of those barriers that will eventually hopefully remove mm-hmm. the disablement so I would often argue that the ancient world is a bit difficult to apply the social model or even the medical model too because these are models that are that were designed to address our much more present moment in the realities of the world we live in today that doesn't mean that they're useless in our historical inquiries nor is it a fault of those models those models were designed for a very specific purpose but that purpose was never to 
encapsulate the full breadth and depth of what it is like to live as a disabled person. But if there was one scenario where I could think in the ancient world where the social model actually does prove a point, I would actually say it is Hephaestus. Hmm. Because, so as I said earlier, it's it, he has this clubbed foot, but that's it. But he is an Olympian still. He has mm-hmm. all this great talent. He has all this great power. Um, and he shows himself to be one of the most powerful gods on Olympus by his own craft, which they utilize for their own ends to ensure their dominion over the rest of the kind of divine world of of Greece. Uh, Obviously, he forges their weapons and armor that they use to fend off many foes, uh, the Gaiganamaki, all those sorts of other threats and and stuff. He he forges, obviously, their homes on Olympus. He, He creates all sorts of things. And like I said earlier, he has the power to give life to inanimate things. He mm-hmm. uses the fire of the forge because he has this special affinity with fire to be able to breathe life into things that otherwise would not. And that's quite significant because that means he's kind of outside of that kind of natural cycle of fertility. He doesn't need to be part of that. He can create life without that, which makes him quite powerful as far as the other gods go. But it's also his power to bind as well, which is a key thing, is that by being able to bind these other powerful beings, i.e. Hera, Aphrodite, and Ares, he 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 has control over them in a way. And that, I think, is obviously quite a threat to the others. So when he's bargaining to get back into Olympus, I think, you know, this is obviously my interpretation. That's obviously key to bring in. Mm-hmm. But I think there is some conscious acknowledgement on the part of the other gods to be like, mm, maybe we should bring him in because otherwise if he keeps going like this, uh, that could be a real danger to the rest of us. And, and in fact, it's obviously he knows that they can't like free Hera any other way. So it's it's mm-hmm. kind of a conceit on their part that, yes, he's the only way we're going to get her out. And we need to get her out because otherwise it will be of harm to her. Otherwise, you know, he, they, they have to bring him in. So how how do you disable him as well? Because the other thing is, is um, you know, his mobility in and of itself. Like while we do have scenes of him struggling, most notably, obviously, the beginning of the, the Iliad, uh, where he's toing and throwing and huffing and puffing and and delivering the drinks to which the gods are laughing. Mm. Otherwise, um, his mobility is actually doesn't seem to pre- present much of an issue because, of course, he creates these mobility aids for himself in order to get around. So there is obviously his um, automatons who help him around the forge and are capable of of doing jobs for him as well. Uh, you have, there is literally, I, I can't remember where, I apologize, but there are attestations where he is claimed to have created the wheeled chair. It's more like a chariot than a chair, but it's still mm. cool that it gets translated as wheelchair. I like that. Yeah. I like just to think that he is the one who created it. But he basically, his mobility isn't actually an issue unless it's the Olympians themselves that make it an issue. Think again mm. to the start of the Iliad. They're the ones making him deliver the drinks in that way. So how do how do you disable him then? Because by all accounts, mm-hmm. he doesn't seem very disabled. I would argue he's disabled by the fact that the other Olympians, in order to keep him in some form of check, essentially, um, they torment him. And like mm-hmm. I said earlier, you have that example of him being forced to do physical labor that they know he will struggle to do. But mm-hmm. they expect him to conform to the Olympian ideal, which, like the social model of disability, society is expecting disabled people to conform to what they can't instead of adapting for their needs. So in the same way, the Olympians are expecting Hephaestus to be as Olympian as they wanted him to be, but he obviously cannot in his own way. Um, and that is what disables him. And it goes further. Like like I said earlier, he can bind. And Zeus, being the 
also a very cunning, very conniving bastard that he is, <laughs> essentially forces Hephaestus, or maybe forces is the wrong word, he, he mm. deceives him into binding mm. Prometheus. Mm-hmm. And Prometheus is his kinsman, so the two are quite quite close. So he it's, and and Hephaestus laments having to do this. He laments mm-hmm. having to bind his own kinsman because he knows how dangerous and how how harmful that is to someone he really cares about. In the same way, uh, going to that story of Aphrodite and Ares and his his reaction to that whole thing. Now, obviously, it goes without saying, as we kind of alluded to earlier, that is a massive overreaction. I am not denying that in any way, yeah. nor am I denying that that Aphrodite did not have fair reason. Like, you know, she is in a in a marriage against her own will, and there is no love there, and she is the god of goddess of love. What's mm-hmm. she gonna do? Uh, and I did see some. I, I did in one conversation with someone. Uh, they referred to it as slut shaming, which I think is a very interesting mm-hmm. kind of modern interpretation of it, which is valid. I think it's mm-hmm. it's a very it's a very fair way of reading it. But what I would say to take away from it, if you go back and read it, what what I take away from it, what I find interesting is that in that moment, I think Hephaestus is denied his agency because Mm -hmm. the reason he is doing that is not only because he's hurt or whatever. I mean, he is clearly by a great degree, Mm -hmm. but fundamentally what he's doing by entrapping them and getting all the other gods to come and see, he's trying to get his dowry back, which Mm. by, by the standards of the day, by the, by the kind of the, the, the worldview of the day, he is entitled to by all accounts Mm -hmm. because his wife has, has cheated on him. Um, And so he's demanding that Zeus give his, give his dowry back, but Zeus Mm. doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He just refuses outright to give it to him. The other male gods are obviously having a whale of a time because they are a laughing at him. Uh, Hephaestus that is obviously mm-hmm. for being cuckolded they are obviously goggling over Aphrodite and they're also laughing at Ares I think is worth saying because mm-hmm. he got ca- he got captured by Hephaestus so mm-hmm. they they find the whole thing hilarious the 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 the, the, the goddesses don't don't come to see because they are I think the translation says shamed but uh, you know whatever that means that just mm-hmm. yeah 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 <laughs> I think obviously um you could also interpret it as they're just like this stupid male bullshit <laughs> yeah, <true. laughs> um, Better than anyway <laughs> But yeah, it is. It turns out that Poseidon, in the end, has to kind of say, "Look, I will pay you the value of that dowry in order so that you let them go." Because again, binding is a very serious thing. And if you found Aphrodite in particular, I mean, Ares and Aphrodite both being bound is a bad thing. But mm-hmm. Aphrodite in particular, this goddess of fertility and, and 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 love and all these things that are very very vital for the world to keep on going, is kind of like, no, we can't we can't keep her trapped forever because when she's bound, when gods are bound, they're powerless. Or they start mm-hmm. to become powerless. So that's the key thing. You can't can't leave them like that. Um, that's one of the few ways in which an Olympian can truly be threatened. So that's why they're like, no, that's a bad thing. But the thing is, is that he has to go through all that just to get a fraction of what his other kind of kin could easily have demanded just on 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 the spot and would have mm-hmm. likely gotten i always like to propose that if you were to reverse Ares and hephaestus's roles in that mm-hmm. story do you think the greeks would tell it in the same way and i think the answer is not i think if if that had happened another way around the greeks would have told a very different story and so it's just it, it, most of all i just want you to take away from it a thought exercise in which you think about the ways in which they are approaching him and in his being and obviously, while I don't think his impairment is the sole reason for that, and again, it does not absolve him of his mm-hmm. attitude or of his 
nature and in other ways and i mean we can get on to his relationship with athena as well in a moment mm -hmm. but um it is still something i think worth bearing in mind that this is in 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 a reality he is denied that that kind of uh, agency that his other kin would have had mm -hmm. uh, so i i don't i don't in any way advocate that you again sympathize for him because he's mm -hmm. a god he doesn't need your sympathy and also he he's done plenty ill himself but it's more just so that when you when you read that story when you think about it i do i do ask that you think about it with that lens in mind and mm -hmm. recognize that you can also kind of draw that distinction between his embodiment of disability and his other kind of um natures if it will because sometimes it does unfortunately become the case that the the two kind of almost get intermeshed too much and therefore people kind of that's the takeaway from it um and mm -hmm. and that's obviously very harmful so mm -hmm. i i would i would ask that people kind of uh, if you if you go back and read it now do do keep that in mind and think about it and be more critical about about that kind of side of the story um because if if you think about it like the fact that he went to that extent just to get that thing says a lot about his relationship with the with the other with the other gods i think and his mm -hmm. situation in olympus that the only places that he ever seems to feel happy are in his forge and on lemnos those are the only two places that he ever seems to feel contented otherwise he he's always kind of in a foul mood or at least he is in a mood that suggests um tension mm -hmm. so that's just interesting from my point of view anyway no i think that's i mean important and also so true you know because mm. even just making that straight comparison of like if the roles were reversed with Ares, would that have happened and you're completely right they wouldn't have happened mm. and so you know so there's like an inherent connection in that just by presenting it it that way where it's yeah no one would have mm. come in and laughed at Ares, you know mm. in that way and they it is really presented as something funny like something mm. what a ridiculous thing Hephaestus tried to do mm. you know what was he thinking thinking that he could get away with that and and mm. things like that that I do think yeah the the connection certainly does need to be made that it wouldn't mm. have have happened to to the other god Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. 
Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. There is, um, if if I may, just quickly jump in. Please. There is another um, uh, connection because obviously that that episode comes, I believe, from the Odyssey. That's when that occurs, if I remember. Uh, yes, but also in in most detail, it's in the Homeric hymn to Aphrodite. That's it. Thank you. But there is also um, in the Iliad, um, not to do with Hephaestus specifically, but I do think it's an interesting parallel. And I made this for my um, undergraduate thesis in. Um, in uh, the second chapter of the, or the second book, sorry, of, of the Iliad, um, obviously you have the Council of the Achaeans where they're coming together after the withdrawal of Achilles and they're all like, oh shit, what do we do? Uh, we've literally lost our best guy. Yeah, um, we're fucked. We're <laughs> fucked. Um, and, they, and they don't know what to do. So in that moment, there is actually a scene where a commoner um, called uh, Feris, uh, I, I'm going to butcher this name, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. Uh, I always Feris- do, sorry. Feristes. Um, who is uh, essentially he's an old soldier who who now kind of serves the other soldiers and he's a part of Odysseus's kind of very large entourage if you will but he is described as as um, being physically monstrous and mentally insubordinate so mm-hmm. he is clearly described as in, in embodying what we would recognize as disability and in this scene he basically loses his rag and basically like like Hephaestus in a way he loses his rag with everyone else around him and he basically just tells them straight he basically just says uh Agamemnon you done fucked up obviously I'm paraphrasing here but he essentially says you're a fool for having taken uh Achilles prize um and you've doomed us all essentially you've doomed this campaign because you did this silly thing now everyone is so taken aback by this so taken aback that the only thing that can really be done Odysseus kind of leaps into action and basically beats him black and blue because mm-hmm. he spoke out against these superiors. He eventually scurries away, and uh, everyone is said to have laughed. But this is an interesting thing, and this kind of comes back to what we were saying about reception. It's never clear exactly how the audience is supposed to take this. How, how are they supposed to respond to this? Are they supposed to respond to the fact that this, that this uh, physically monstrous man apparently you know, spoke out of turn and got his ass handed to him by Odysseus? Or... Is it supposed to point out the fact that it took this man to say something, to say what was true, that they were that the, those so-called heroes were left so stunned that the only thing they could do was beat him silly? Mm-hmm. So it's never clear whether these characters are actually supposed to be laughed at or or whether the laughter is more this kind of nervous sort of, oh, crap, he's right. <laughs> you know, like the, you know. And I think I like to interpret that scene as Odysseus adds... 
and the other heroes and Agamemnon obviously being ta- taken so aback that they're like, oh crap, um, he's he's right, you know, but god damn him for being right, and so they beat him up for it. Well, yeah. But yeah, yeah. In, the, in the same way, I think Hephaestus, obviously, in his own nature, kind of does that within his own situation with the Olympians. He calls them out all the time for how they treat him, but obviously they just blow him off. No, that's so true. I'd forgotten about that scene. I just pulled out my copy to to look at it. Um, and mm. I and I remember it now. Yeah, it it it's so true because I mean, he's obviously right. You know, mm. like it, it, it and and everything will go on to prove that he is mm. right. You know, we're only in this second book, so it's an interesting thing to wonder what the intention was there because certainly in reading it now, you think like, okay, we're in book two. If you know the end of the story, you know that like this man is completely correct Mm -hmm. in in his you know accusal of agamemnon of just like fucking everything up which he absolutely did i mean granted like achilles also is a deep overreactor (laughs) yeah so like not to suggest that like yeah not to suggest that only agamemnon is to blame both of these men are ridiculous yes um but at the same time yeah i mean anyone who was listening to the story i would imagine would think like oh here here is is this man who you know is completely accurate and and calling Agamemnon out and you know but at the same time as much as I think maybe you know maybe Odysseus and Agamemnon whatever like maybe they did well Agamemnon could never appreciate that he was wrong but Odysseus Mm -hmm. is supposed to be smart so yes but at the same time I think Odysseus is is that cunning Odysseus Mm -hmm. in that way where while um you know while this speech is correct and i think odysseus probably knows like he knows Mm. that agamemnon shouldn't have done that and agamemnon did fuck up but he also knows that agamemnon is the one who's more powerful so he's going to beat the man senseless because regardless of him being right odysseus is cunning he's not only you know smart he's not just going to go say like oh you're completely right Mm -hmm. because Mm -hmm. he's kind of a dick you know like i love him but he's an asshole and he's like super problematic fave right like and and so he's going to look at it and still say like, okay, well, my best way of staying alive mm-hmm. is to beat this guy and tell Agamemnon that he was wrong mm-hmm. when obviously he's right. And so, you know, I, I, you know, again, I'm coming at it from a much more, I also like, I, I have a literary background. So I also, I dive at these things of like, I have an English degree and we like to mm-hmm. pick everything apart in addition to the myths. So, but of course, you know, the, the connection is obvious to be made of like, yeah, mm-hmm. he's also explicitly described as all of these, you know, uh, yeah, what I forget the exact descriptions, but all of these uh, things that physically monstrous and, and mentally insubordinate uh, is the word. Perfect. Oh, gosh, that's oh, yes. quite a phrase. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, those those uh, those aspects um, certainly like come into to the way that he's treated and, and maybe. If it was, you know, Ajax coming in and saying all of these things, Odysseus probably wouldn't have beat him up. He also yeah. couldn't have. Ajax would have beat him. So, yeah. you know, yeah. yeah, it's it's all of those little implications. And, and mm. it's such an interesting, I mean, all, yeah, it, it, it's, it's just interesting even, you know, from all of the different perspectives mm. of looking at it and thinking about all of these characters. Anyway, I... I I'm constantly thrilled with anyone bringing up any of these new, like new ways of looking at, at any oh, of these pieces. There's, al- there's just... always new ways of looking at these things. That's yeah. the, the, the wonderful things about myths is that they are, I think I, I, I said at one point in the past that they, they are essentially still living things and they, mm-hmm. and they are constantly reshaped by our own, re- by our own retellings and interpretations of them. And that's what makes them so interesting, but it also means that there is so much to kind of pull out and to kind of look at, across various translations and copies that have come down across mm-hmm. 
across the uh, years because like one 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 um kind of interesting detail that changes in some variations of the Iliad for example uh, when Fetus goes to Hephaestus to uh, have the uh, the armor made by by him for Achilles mm-hmm. uh, in in the quote unquote original so the more extant Greek versions um that is just something that he does for her because obviously he's very endeared to her because of how she looked after um, him and cared mm-hmm. for him um, so he does that and he just gives it to her in in a later Roman version of the myth again second century AD the second century AD just seems to come up there seems to be a shift in attitude somewhere because mm-hmm. in that version he essentially um, tries to coerce uh, sex out of her in in return yeah. for making yes uh it is it is not something uncommon for the gods to do coercing sex in return for <laughs> no. gifts is 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 definitely not new <laughs> Uh, so he's not the only one who's tried this sort of thing, but it is it is interesting that they make him do that, especially with his essentially adoptive mother, for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. That that is a very interesting sort of uh, conundrum there, um, and it is it is interesting why they add that in, and and God knows as to as to why they may have decided to do that. But it is again in these various retellings, and I think that adds to sometimes how he's perceived as this kind of. Uh, sexually frustrated god even though in reality he is no less successful or or disastrous than any of the other gods uh like he is described as being very happily um engaged to agalia um the the um charity mm. brightness right i always forget about that yeah and there is also i can't remember the other one Damn it! He's also described by Hesiod as being as being married to another lesser divinity. But that's the key thing as well: is that he he gets married to younger lesser divinities, which by implication of status, because usually the the marriage is to the eldest. So that kind of suggests that he is of lesser status or seen of lesser mm. status because he's marrying these go- these goddesses of lesser status. But to, from from the way I like to imagine it and interpret it, I doubt he would care too much. Like <laughs> I think, yeah. you know, having these partners who actively seem to value him. So that's the other thing to bear in mind. We talk a lot, whenever we talk about Hephaestus and we think about his relationships, we talk a lot about his frustrations and how it all goes wrong and stuff like that. But there are many other times where he clearly is shown to be quite happily uh, married. So that is another thing to bear in mind. But that also kind of comes on to, I think, I mean, well, actually, before we get into that, you did ask mm-hmm. that you wanted to talk a little bit about the automatons. Uh, mm-hmm. So before we go off on too much of another tangent, because I was about to mention Athena. <laughs> yeah, we can get into that. Yeah, we'll get into that. But um, yeah. Yeah, so the automatons and and Talos, too, because mm. Talos is someone I want to dive into. I keep meaning to buy um, Adrian Mayer's book, Gods and Robots. I jotted that mm. down when you mentioned the automatons because it spurred mm-hmm. me to, mm-hmm. to do it again. But um, yeah, like let's talk about about those and and Talos because he really he does. I mean, I think he also is part of creating Pandora too. Yes, uh, yes. From clay and everything. Yeah, he mean mm. well, he's the craftsman god, so it mm. makes sense. But I mean, yeah, please. Yeah, there is there is so much to unpack there, and I mean, I come at it from a very interesting angle, especially the 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 story of Pandora and how he makes her from clay, because mm-hmm. I'm coming at this again as as an Egyptologist, and in mm-hmm. Egyptology and the Egyptian myths. Uh, the one of the ver- one of the origins of humanity is the uh, potter god uh, Kunum, who mm. literally makes man from straw and clay, um, mm. and that's very interesting also from histories of the body and the mind, because it it essentially implies that we are very malleable beings. We are be able to be shaped and changed and molded into various things. And 
actually there's Near Eastern influences because it, it spans into the into the Hittites and the Assyrians as well. Actually, mm. um, some some theorize that ties in with Hephaestus as well and his creation of automatons and moving images because that is a very kind of Near Eastern idea. Um, mm-hmm. Think of of the Assyrian lamassus, the big winged bulls that were gate guardians, Ooh. or the same with uh, lions as well, um, or any other like great and terrible beasts that you can imagine. Um, they they were created obviously to to be protectors, but the the idea for the ancients in their head is that these were animate things. If not in the literal sense of being able to move, then they embodied a spirit which was able to kind of do these horrible things to any enemies that tried to befell the gates. And actually, mm. you do get um, for Hephaestus, you do get stories. I think in 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 the Odyssey. Um, one story is about a palace that Odysseus goes to and it's protected by dogs, uh, bronze dogs that are made are said to have been made by Hephaestus. Oh. Uh, so Alkinos. Alkinos's dogs. Phaeacian king. Yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. So yeah. Phaeacia. And it, he marvels at these dogs, these dogs that are like literally meant to be able to animate themselves to, mm-hmm. to guard against insurgents. There is also um, a story from a not, well, this paper is from the 1980s, so recent in kind of, you know, scholarship terms. Yeah. Uh, a recently um, excavated kind of, I don't know if it's Ostrica or, 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 or maybe a, a just some sort of uh, kind of written down statement. Um, yeah. Essentially, it speaks of a bronze lion that uh, Hephaestus made and buried on on Lesbos. Uh, it's actually entombed there. And what I love yeah. about this paper is that it refers to it as the lesbian lion. So I just, I, I, I cannot yeah. help but imagine like this lion wrapped in the, in the lesbian pride flag and, and Sappho <laughs> riding on the back of it, chasing off Hell any yeah. men who try to come on to the Slur island. island. Yeah. <laughs> Slur Island. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that's just great. But yes, he, he essentially gets attested as having making these things. And I do think that's an interesting uh, kind of um, one of his many feats is not only because, mm-hmm. like I said earlier, he's able to give life to inanimate things, but the that life is is not always kind of in terms of of strict animation, like being able to move. They can, I mean, Talos is is a great example of that, but mm-hmm. it is also just in the terms of that they almost encase that fire. They they put that inside of them, and that mm-hmm. is kind of what empowers them to do um, all these kind of terrible things to anyone who tries to do anything nasty to the thing that they're defending, be that a house yeah. or or an actual city or a place. In the case of Lesbos, you know this this lion is actually like from the description that's given of it, it doesn't actually animate as in physically animate. That's why it's buried in, in the ground. But the idea is that right. it's buried in the ground, and it's it it does encase this this fire. So basically any ill that comes to the island is going to face the ill of the of the lion. Yeah. And that is again it comes it, it's a very near eastern thing, very near eastern magic thing as well this this idea of um statues or or kind of monuments that imbue this sort of power. So that's very interesting and it it, it reminds you just how interconnected obviously the 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 world is um mm-hmm. and something that often gets gets um hotly debated even today like I mean Everyone made the big uh, hoo-ha over Bernal's Black Athena back in the, back in the eighties, mm. and how he obviously tried to draw the connection between Egypt and the Near East and and Greece, and tried mm. to kind of dispel this idea that um, that classical Greece somehow just kind of came out of the ether, like all of a sudden fifth century oh Athens gosh, was yeah. just there, um, you know, of all the, in- the enlightenment that uh, some old men apparently had, um, but yeah. the, the <laughs> old white men, <laughs> um, old white men indeed, yeah, um, but the 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 
obviously that has since been picked apart because he is kind of wading into this with not too much grounding in mm. in those areas but it doesn't take away from the overall point that that, that these things are more interconnected than than people kind of really thought and the fact that you know there is a lot of influence that obviously just comes over because the greeks obviously in in reality are are traders seafarers by mm-hmm. by by nature so they're they're all over the shop you obviously norcratis in in egypt you you have obviously in the in the levant as well in obviously uh asia minor in turkey they're all over and so they are they are interacting with these people no one exists in a vacuum so in that same way, these ideas and, and these embodiments that come to when we think about the automatons and when we think about Hephaestus as well, you know, they mm-hmm. are interconnected. And, and it's always fascinating to, to draw the combinations between the two. Yeah, well, and because and, I mean, that leads me to Talos, right, which is mm. which is the like enormous robotic automaton guy mm. that he creates to protect Crete. And so, I mean, there's some there, I had. Uh, the, my problem is I don't know enough about you know the eastern ones. I, I always want to make very clear to my listeners the connections because I think that's important, even though I don't know enough about their history or mythology. But I mean, even the Greeks made it clear they had all of these connections. It, it's it's you know the the idea the you know placing whiteness upon upon Greece and Rome and mm. making them be this like bubble that they existed in that was like you know this like white western civilization invention bubble is mm. is you know wild and racist and and so troubling um but it, it's you know even they made it so clear like you know that that's something that's placed upon them later but they knew like you know they took their language they say mythologically from cadmus of the phoenicians and their connections to egypt are are you know huge and great and and you know talked about so much and and north africa all of that and you know, and then so, but to to bring it back to what you're saying about this connection to the um the the bronze statues and automatons, that's fascinating because Talos is on Crete, which is obviously you know the closest Greek island mm. to Egypt, and had the most, um, especially certainly like in you know the much earlier they had so many connections mm. to Egypt through trade and through everything because they were so far south and such a big island, and so, I mean that connection there is something I'd never made made before of the you know the connection to the east and and and. Hephaestus's creation of this enormous bronze man to protect yes. the island like that's yeah. such a yeah that's that adds another layer to that mm. and and so fascinating and th- what you said about the fire within them as being their creation their life force kind of thing is is an additional I mean fascinating but also makes that explicit connection both to his um, status as craftsman god uh, and and god of fire and and all of that and yeah, I think that doesn't get talked enough about, you know, it, it is kind of all about his his anger and, and his, his bitterness towards Aphrodite and Hera. And I'm certainly guilty of that. I'll absolutely <laughs> own up. It comes out of my childhood love of Aphrodite that's never gone away. And like, that's always been my goddess. And so I immediately go to to those things. And also, I, you know, it, I like Aphrodite and Aries. And so I'm like, Hephaestus, you're such an asshole. (laughs) All of these things. And like, he is. But also that that is something that it connects immediately to a thing that I try to do on the podcast so much, which is is not talk about these stories as if that they were, you know, uh, any kind of... I want to use the word truth because it seems to make the m- mm. most point right now. That it, it's not like it's a story that happened and therefore it is an objective truth. Yeah, no, it, it is, you know, yeah, like like you're saying, you know, myths are living things, they're malleable and they change over time between sources. But also 
the thing I like to talk about most lately, the more and more I learn about it is who told the stories, whose mm-hmm. stories got written down and whose stories that were written down survived. Mm-hmm. And so you have this, that is, I always talk about it in terms of the women, but I think it's also equally applicable to somebody like Hephaestus, you know, and, and I wonder what stories we might not have of him mm-hmm. um you know what stories were told within um you know circles of ancient greek people you know be they disabled or not or you know i mean but i think especially maybe stories from people who had similar experiences to hephaestus or just disabilities of their own or you know various things like that and and what stories they might have told about him and and how maybe they would have connected to him in such a positive way and those things we don't have you know mm-hmm. and, and i think that's a fascinating thing to think about the just the things we don't have and and, and how that then connects to somebody like Hephaestus who has been so affected by the stories that we do have which you know while they acknowledge his importance but also definitely you know make really bold claims about the way he was treated by the Olympians and, you know, his own just personality yeah. and, and everything in there. Yeah. I, um, I mean, and I think, as you said, you always have to think about what's missing. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and again, these stories for whom and by whom were they, were they created? Um, and, and yep. I think obviously in, in that sense becomes even more complicated to untangle, especially when we're thinking about his, his relationship with anger and how he displays it because it's it's I, I I was very fortunate in in my final year of undergrad to take a module with a, a wonderful academic uh, a, a classic uh, Greek scholar called uh, Dr. Riet van Bremen uh, and she does a lot on Greek youth that's really her mm-hmm. specialty and the a lot of the study of Greek youth ties in emotions especially because Greek youth which predominantly unfortunately refers to Greek men uh, she mm-hmm. always laments every every class she would lament the fact that it was majoritively <laughs> that we had to talk about men and not women because we only unfortunately get very kind of extant sources on on young women mm-hmm. um, but anyway um, this young men have this very intricate relationship with anger as well they are almost expected in some ways to to kind of display this anger at what they is kind of what as they as the as the kind of inheritors of the cities and of the spaces that they occupy when they reach come of age once they get through the epibeia this is like the the coming of age ritual and they and they become adults they are expected to kind of utilize that anger to essentially gain their right as male citizens to to um, protect their city, to protect their land, and obviously to, you know, whatever else. But it's interesting, again, going to Hephaestus and his anger, his anger is almost kind of the the over, over kind of estimation of that anger, and he's almost the dangerous side of it. And it is interesting mm-hmm. how you could interpret some kind of interpretations of Greek, Greek interpretations of disability. I, I, in my view, do seem to reflect this as well, like the disabled man, is very much a threat to the health of the polis. You know, his mm. his his both in terms of his physical body, but also in terms of his his anger and his bitterness. And this kind of goes on into the Hellenic age, where you see these kind of statues, which are referred to in the literature today as grotesques. Uh, these are kind of terracotta uh, figurines of mostly men. There are some women, but there are mostly men uh, who are just dis- uh, what we would say is like disfigured or you know deformed or horrible words like that. Um, and they show like hunchbacks or, or lame 
uh, lame feet, as they would say in the literature, so club feet or mm-hmm. or um, any other, or, or sometimes dwarfism is one mm-hmm. thing that pops up. And they're often shown to have these kind of wild sort of expressions and they've been interpreted various ways. And some of them are very clearly scowls, their anger. And again, these were made for elite men to have in their household. They were, they were, they were placed in the household and no one's really sure exactly what they were for. Some people think they were, they were for humor. Others think that perhaps they were there because it was meant to be a reflection of, of like, you know, this is, this is not what you are like you know this is this is this is this is what you could be if you were a bitter person or whatever so you should be grateful Mm -hmm. or or anything like that there's loads of different ways you can interpret it i'm not exactly Mm -hmm. sure how to interpret them but what i do think they were is that they were meant to be reflections on that and in that disability has always been society's kind of uh way of reflecting upon itself like we always think of disability as the other but to me, disability is a universal human constant, which has always been there, not just by the nature of human, how humans are, by their biological material. We, we, our bodies are malleable and they change all the time, both in terms mm-hmm. of their own DNA, but also just in terms of our, of our vital organs and, and our limbs and things like that. So disability will be, it was there at the beginning and it will be there at the end. I give okay. you that promise now. But mm-hmm. um, I think in terms of human society, it has always existed in the mind's eye of society because disabled people are the pale mirror to that reality of humanity, which some societies will accept, some will reject, some will be somewhere in the middle. It's never a black and white thing. So in this case, I think those grotesques are a similar thing where they are a kind of reflection on this kind of, especially when you think of the Hellenic age, which obviously is painted by obviously the conquests of Alexander and the, mm-hmm. and the, and the aftermath of that, the, the, the competition between the various states that were born from his empire. And the, but it was a very violent time for all intents and purposes. Mm-hmm. And so that is why in the, in the art of the age, there is this turn towards art that is more expressive, but also more, violent in a way it's it's kind of more twisted more emotion and 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 their faces are actually becoming expressive now whereas in the classical kind of style of art it was much more muted in terms of its expressions so Mm -hmm. in that same way i do think maybe hephaestus especially as as time went on and as transmissions change maybe his relationship with the other gods the olympians is supposed to be a reflection of that attitude of the kind of the need to keep a pure and and well uh, maintained center uh, of order and of a standard of being that the these kind of disabled uh, individuals embodiments kind of are the the kind of pale to that norm and so they kind of keep them close because they want to make sure they're not a threat but obviously keep them at a distance enough so that they can never be fully a part of it again that's just you know a very surface level reading so it's far more complex than that and there are many mm-hmm. great scholars who are working on that to look at the intricacies of that but that's like it is far more complex than just what you would see on the surface and in that same way that obviously goes doubly true for the relationship with the with the rest of the world and just the ideas that are being transmitted i think it is very interesting of course that a lot of what hephaestus does like with talos on crete and a lot of the other things he does in in that kind of area of the greek world is obviously around where a lot of volcanic activity is happening so this Mm -hmm. is obviously to the greeks i think this is obviously a place where they see him as being a very active person i mean i think to the romans um obviously with uh, sicily i think the saying was that 
whenever Etna was erupting or was close to erupting, they interpreted that as obviously him being furious with uh, Venus. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was just, that was, yes, I think the saying goes like, obviously Venus has yet again gone off with, with someone else. <laughs> but it's it, that volcanic activity. This is a, this is a, I think often what we struggle with is that when we go to these places today, like you, obviously you can visit Lesbos, you can visit uh, Lemnos, where actually their their international airport is called Hephaestus, which is I think is really cool. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I think that's that makes awesome. Me so happy, and now I have to go. Oh shucks. <laughs> but um, yeah, if you go to these places, we obviously go there, and they're beautiful. They're they're scenic, mm-hmm. and and but most of the volcanoes now are extant. They don't really aren't active anymore, mm-hmm. with they're the exception sleepy. of one or two. They're sleepy. We go there now, and this is true of any landscape you go to. It's the same with Egypt. This is something Egyptologists always have to remember. You go to the landscape now, you don't realize how violent it was. Like, mm-hmm. you know, these eruptions were happening on a far more regular basis than than we can kind of imagine. And and that would that would like kind of shape communities and it would it not just in terms of obviously their makeup and how they had to move and live, but also just in the way that they saw the world. And so I think as well, that obviously does shape their relationship with their personification of that Hephaestus. And and they do see, and that's again, maybe perhaps where his violent temperament comes from, but maybe also where his embodiment comes from. Maybe it's the fact that these volcanoes, these violent fissures in the earth, you know, on the earth's surface, you know, are, this, are what he embodies. He embodies this this kind of violent um, um, embodiment and 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 I, I do think there are many different avenues to which you could take it and so therefore by extension these automatons how he's wielding this power this violence to create these wondrous machines mm-hmm. that you know even by his his other like kin standards like they're like wow this is this is this is awesome but also very scary like mm-hmm. again this is part of the reason why they kind of want him in olympus because they don't want yeah. him sitting on his own building all these automatons because that could be a serious threat to them i mean he yeah he is a serious threat to them in general yeah. his abilities and his 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 skill mm-hmm. which is which is why i think it's 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 so interesting um and he is he is far more interesting character and just to go back very briefly because you said mm-hmm. you know obviously you come at this obviously being such a stand for aphrodite which is which is fine and i i, I do want to again make it very clear you're allowed to not like hephaestus i'm not trying to say you have to like you know give him all the credence now or feel any sympathy for him i know i keep repeating this but it's more that i hope that from this conversation what you'll take away is that he's a far more complex character Oh, nerds, as always, thank you so much for listening. Again, I absolutely love this conversation. I really, we just talked about so much, which is why next week you are going to hear part two, where we talk more about Hephaestus's status as a volcano god and what that means for him as a character, a little bit more about disability in the ancient world, some connections with Egypt and the East, reception of Hephaestus and how he has been changed over time from what he was in antiquity and how the ancient Greeks would have seen him to how he is depicted in pop culture today and everything that comes along with that. Honestly, so much more fascinating stuff to come. Thank you all so much. I am Liv and I love this shit.
Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th, just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota.